Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Riesmandel. I'm Jennifer Waits. And today is a good time to catch up. We, we There hasn't been a Radio Survivors episode now for about a month and a half, almost two months. And there's definitely news in the world of the radio and sound that we care about to catch up on. And then particularly, uh, Jennifer, you know, we really haven't talked about what's going on in college radio right now. Um, you know, we, we had a little bit of a, uh, of a report from the University of Virginia. Um, Nathan Moore came on to talk a little bit about how uh, the year uh, of the pandemic year went at, at a college station there, as well as their hybrid college community radio station. But otherwise, um, we haven't had too much of a chance to uh, take that temperature. And I know that you're actually able to attend uh, one of the big conferences that happens annually, the Intercollegiate Broadcast System, attend their virtual conference. And I think it's the 81st, is that right? 81st annual. Wow. Yeah, I think this is probably surprising to a lot of people, but Intercollegiate Broadcasting System, IBS, it launched in those early days of Carrier Current as basically an organization right. for Carrier Current radio stations to collaborate and, you know, talk to each other about how to build stations in the beginning. Just remind everyone what Carrier Current is. So these were campus-only radio stations that, uh, well, some people would call it dorm, dorm radio, where students built radio stations that used the infrastructure of campus buildings in order to broadcast. And So like the electrical wiring or the plumbing, right? Any place where you sort of have big right. pieces of metal, essentially, right? gas pipes. And so in some cases, people refer to them as gas pipes networks. And, and so those um, parts of the building would be used like antennas. And then you could tune in on an AM radio in your building to to carrier current. And, and still, they, some of these stations still exist. When I was in college, my college radio station was a carrier current station that we could hear in dorms and select dorms on AM radios and then in our dining hall. So IBS uh, started uh, back, now I can't remember the math, but it started around this time, 81, 81 years ago. Um, it held its first conference of these stations that were carrier current stations. And they would also meet up to collaborate on ad buys because Carrier current is a form of broadcasting that we talk about as being part 15. So they're an unlicensed radio station. FCC doesn't um, license carrier current yeah, radio stations. Yeah, as long stations. as you obey the rules for part 15, they otherwise don't care what you do. Yeah, as long as you're not interfering with, with other broadcasts. And so carrier current stations could actually run advertising so some of what IBS stations did in those early years was work together on ad buys so that they could maybe find a sponsor that would buy time on carrier current radio stations all over the country. So intercollegiate broadcasting system, that's basically, you know, in a snapshot, the history of that organization. They've been doing these annual conferences in New York City for years and years. Um, and I had gone to one a long time ago, probably in the early days of my spinning indie blog. So, you know, pre-Radio Survivor. So maybe 2008, 2007? Yeah, something like that. 2008, 2009, maybe 2008. And 
So I'd attended way back then. I was on a panel about social media, believe it or not, which is kind of crazy to think about what that meant in 2008. Um, I hadn't been in years, but kind of the silver lining of the pandemic is that I've been able to go to conferences that I haven't otherwise been able to attend because they've been held virtually. So IBS uh, held a virtual conference in March, and, and they pointed out that the last IBS conference was in March 2020, and it was literally one of the last conferences mm-hmm. that was held before the country was shut down. So there are actually stories of students and people from college and high school radio who you know, we're coming back on the plane from attending this conference and everything was sort of changing. So I was supposed to be in New York City right around the same time, not for IBS, although I had it on my radar and I thought if I could stop by, I would, but it was for podcasting industry events. And I was the first person in, in my in my company where management said, um, yeah, please don't get on a plane where like as of like right now <laughs> we are ending uh, company travel. And and I had several colleagues who who'd gotten on a plane to go to New York the day before and all and all were there at these events. And I was the one uh, sort of caught in that in that breach. But somebody has to be the first. Right. I was actually going I actually had a, an afternoon plan to go hang out with David Gorin who was on this show a couple of weeks oh, ago, yeah. uh, the, the person behind the uh, Brooklyn Pirate Radio sound map, and he was going to let me uh, take a sort of a virtual sound tour with his radios uh, during that trip. And uh, so I was Amazing. very disappointed that I wasn't, that I did not, did not, was not able to go there or to, to the podcast events or even uh, do maybe a drive-by on, on, on the intercollegiate broadcast system, the IBS conference. It was a it was a strange time. I think you know, and South by Southwest was canceled. There were all these things where, um, you know, people were sort of surprised that conferences were getting canceled. But the more and more, as more and more things were canceled, I think it's you know, it dawned on people, wow, this is a really serious situation, this pandemic. So so IBS um, Mar- in March twenty twenty one they had a virtual event and. You know, I go to the College Broadcasters Inc. conference pretty much every year. That's CBI, um, another college radio organization, and and these events are actually quite different. Um, so the IBS conference, it's it, a lot of the panels and presentations are from industry professionals, and it's actually an incredible opportunity for students because some of them are billed as an audience with. And so it might be an audience with a very high level programmer from, say, iHeartRadio or SiriusXM. And there are other uh, panels and presentations from people who are morning show DJs in New York City, you know, major market. And, and so it's a chance for students to ask questions of these professionals and also and also make contact with them. A lot of people giving presentations were more than willing to share their contact information with students to offer advice. So, um, so it was really interesting because I could see how it was an incredible opportunity for students who are interested in having a career in radio or audio because they were, they're given this amazing access to people to ask questions, to find out how they got started in in their job and to get tips on, um, you know, what they learned from their experience in radio. 
So for me, that was a big highlight was to hear some of those stories about people's backgrounds in radio. I, I think what, that's interesting, actually. Yeah. Because one of the recurring themes in, I think, the uh, debates over college radio on college campuses for the last near 20 years, it seems like, has been that the professional training aspect of college radio is in decline, right? That, you know, and at least for, for many schools, that that was that was one aspect of having a radio station, if if not always primary, that we expect that this is sort of paraprofessional training, that some students who are involved in college radio will go on to careers in broadcasting one way or another. And that, and, and, and as the, the radio industry uh, has uh, changed and consolidated and many, especially local uh, air jobs, you know, f- there are just simply fewer people in any local station, commercial station, uh, who are actually on the air any longer, uh, is that retracted, you know, that has often been used as, as a justification f- for some schools to to minimize or or eliminate their funding for student radio at all, you know, and, and certainly over time you've made a great case for on this show and, and on radiosurvivor.com as to how being involved in college radio has many more dimensions than that in terms of, of being part of of just the educational process and even pre-professional kind of education. But nevertheless, it's interesting to me that that <laughs> it isn't as if these opportunities have simply disappeared and 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 that the IBS in particular, you know, is still keeping a focus on on the the opportunities to get into the radio industry, you know, which is increasingly I think even when we're talking about an iHeart it, it's also the audio industry because they are making investments in things like podcasting alongside of uh, of their continued uh, involvement in the radio industry. So, and and what is your sense? You know, I mean, it, it, it maybe harder to tell in the online environment, but I'm assuming there's some degree of Q and A and chat and things like this. Oh yeah. Did it, does it seem like there was a lot of interest in students from from the students who were attending there? Yeah, and I think it's probably the students attending are the students who are interested in radio. Right, right. So it's um self-selecting, yeah. It's self-selecting. What's interesting is you know a lot of the professionals who are speaking talked about their incredible passion for radio and and the the challenges that the challenges that were in place as they um have traveled on their journey in radio. So, you know, tales of people who had worked in, I don't know, 10 different cities, you know, small towns, moving, making their way up until they were broadcasting in New York City. Um, So lots of stories about, you know, starting out with internships. And and so very much, it, it seemed like the people in the industry were super passionate and worked really hard to get where they were. And and you could also hear that from students in the audience who seemed really eager and excited and were thrilled to be asking questions of some of these people who were probably, um, I don't know, in a way, heroes to them, you know, DJs who they might listen to on a morning show in New York City or journalists who they listen to on the radio. So... I, I heard a lot of enthusiasm from the students. I think they knew this was 
a great opportunity to really get some hot tips on, on how to get into the business. And I mean, in addition to that, I also want to point out that um, for me personally, it was really interesting to hear all of these broadcasters talking about what it was like to be broadcasting over the past year. And and for many of them, they talked about how rewarding it actually was that that there were things that were traumatizing um, in reporting on on COVID deaths or knowing that there were infections in the building that they were broadcasting from. But they also felt like being on the radio in this year was something where they were making a real difference in people's lives. And, and that radio is one of these places where you're still getting these simultaneous live experiences. Um, so that to me was super interesting. It was also interesting to hear some things that I hadn't really thought about, about how radio has changed during the pandemic. And there were music programmers who talked about how certain types of contemporary music were less appealing to audiences, that people wanted more comfort food mm. type audio. Mm -hmm. So maybe music from the past 20 years as a as opposed to brand new dance music. Um, and then there are other shows that maybe um, there was a comedic morning show that really relied on call-in, like phone calls from audience members. And then... And these are all commercial... These are all commercial station uh, testimonies right. here, right? This is the professionals telling students about the experiences in this last year. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so somebody who has a morning show and does comedy and... And, you know, there are various technical challenges. Not everybody was able to do a radio show from home with all the gear that they would use in a radio station. So this one guy, he couldn't take phone calls anymore. So he had to figure out how to rework his comedy routine in mm. his morning show and also had to rework how to present comedy during a time when there's a lot of tragedy going on. So the types of jokes that he was telling were more about him working from home and sort of those mundane things. Um, that, that reminds so I found that me interesting. of the Grassroots Radio Conference this past fall, which was virtual. And one of the keynotes was given by Ken Friedman, you may recall, who is the uh, station manager of WFMU, which is a longstanding uh, community radio station out of Jersey City, New Jersey, well known for its freeform programming and, and, and being one of the trailblazers in, in internet broadcasting. And Ken does a sort of improv comedy show on on WFMU. Uh, and he, as part of his um, presentation, his keynote, which was about basically doing community radio at a time during during a pandemic, uh, you know, at a station, in which, when we had Ken on, on the show uh, to talk a bit about it, um, you know, at, at a time when, at a station that really, really, really emphasizes the in-person interaction and being present in the station. But he also talked about doing the improv comedy. At what point can we make COVID jokes? Like, when, right. when is it okay? When are we, you know, and, and, and being on probably non-commercial community radio, which can often be edgier, you know, being maybe ahead of the curve than, than, than your, your local uh, mix station right morning show might want to be uh it just i had that had that thought i i'm curious what so you said that, oh, that, that well, students had a lot of reaction sorry, sorry go ahead oh oh i wanted to say one more thing about that um you know, we had ken friedman on radio survivor in in early 2020 during our little series of of shows that we did talking checking in with stations in the early days of the pandemic and and i asked him specifically about that about how 
um, being in New York City or broadcasting in the New York City area where there was a lot of devastation going on, what was it like to be doing comedy on the air? And, and so we'll put links in the show notes to that episode because that was a pretty profound conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, so the students, how, I mean, you, one, about how many uh, students were in attendance for this intercollegiate broadcast system virtual conference this year? Do you have a sense? Yeah, I know you can't always tell from when you're when you're there uh, uh, in a virtual environment. But is it is it dozens? Was it hundreds? Oh, you know, I don't remember. And I did jot down notes at the time. But, you know, I, I think there were sessions where you had more than 100 people okay. because there were some keynote presentations um, that definitely had a big audience. So it was it was well attended. And then there were smaller sessions like I went to a meetup for high school radio stations. And that was pretty intimate around 10 people, but, but equally, equally amazing. And so what was that like? I mean, did you get a sense for, I mean, we, we've talked about college radio in, 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 in the pandemic times. What, what were things like for, for high school students? Because I think that even, even the experience from high school to high school, there's probably even more variance in terms of in-person uh, you know, uh, distance learning and, and how that would fold into the radio station at a school. Yeah. I mean, so this was, this was one of the few sessions at the conference where uh, I felt like I was getting more of the insight into what was going on in the station because a lot of the conference was really um, these presentations from sort of outside professionals. Mm. So the, the meetup with the high school radio stations was interesting. Everybody was sharing, kind of um, what was going on at their station as far as broadcasting, because, you know, some high schools were completely in distance learning where students were at home and, you know, communicating with school online only. And some schools were starting to bring people back, maybe in a limited way. Um, Stations talked about how they set up their station to have more distance between people. So there were some where they were moving around furniture and computers so that you could have students working with space between them at the radio station. Joe Bryant from KMIH, he talked about how it was a really good year for them to do a lot of podcasts. So if you have more people who are at home, um, he was really pushing that since students could couldn't get into the studio and, and, were, and they, were they broadcasting them or were they just distributing them as podcasts? Do you know? Both, both. Okay. So in some cases, uh, the podcasts were also being broadcast as radio shows. And, and so in this meetup, I, I met some of Joe's students who we invited on to radio survivor and, and they were the students behind the rice and shine podcast. So we'll also put links to that in the show notes. Um, but it was great to meet a couple of these girls and find out about their experience as ninth graders doing podcasting. And so I was very inspired by that and, and was really happy that we were able to eventually have them come on our show as well to talk about that. Yes, and you can find our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. You just need to uh, check out the, the page for for this episode of Radio Survivor, which is number 298. So taking maybe a step back from the um, Intercollegiate Broadcast System Conference, which you attended virtually in March, Jennifer, 
what is what do you feel like is the state of college radio right now? Maybe that's a hard hard question to answer, but I will say from from my perspective as a bit more of an outsider, but paying some attention, but not nearly as much as you do. My overall sense is that college radio has weathered about as well as radio has and and as colleges have in that, you know, it sounds like stations by this point in time, you know, which we're talking about pretty much the end of the semester, getting end of the academic year um, in in most uh, most colleges and universities figured out a way to provide service, right? Whether they were able to figure out social distancing measures, um, you know, students maybe being able to come into studios, you know, one at a time in, in some measure, right? Which I think has been true of KFJC at Foothill College where, where you broadcast or figured out some methodology for some students to broadcast from home or this combination of maybe pre-recording in a podcast form and broadcasting, it sounds as though I, I haven't heard any. Uh, I haven't been privy to any news that that this has wiped out stations. I yeah, I haven't either. I think I think I'm feeling optimistic now because now now we're seeing more campuses opening up, and I think in the fall it's going to be a much different picture. So now we're starting to hear things about some colleges might require that you be vaccinated, yeah. um, you know, at Foothill college where I DJ, I forget if I've even mentioned this on the show, but, but I've come back and I've done a few shows in person now, which I hadn't done in a year. And, and, and for the most part, people at the radio station at Foothill college, KFJC, um, we're the only people on campus, hmm. but some people are starting to come back and, and they're creating measures for you to check into buildings in a different way and do health checks. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of infrastructure that's kind of changing on campus that is going to make it easier for people to come back. Um, And some people may be back already at various other campuses. And certainly we're hearing about high schools that are planning to be fully open in the fall. Uh, So that affects high school radio. So I think, um, you know, a lot of creative things happened in the past year. It'll be interesting to see if those continue. For myself, I'm enjoying being able to go to radio station meetings at my station over Zoom and not having to, you know, get in the car for a long drive. <laughs> well, right. I mean, exactly. I mean, because you live, uh, it's a, what, a good 30-minute, 40-minute drive from yeah. the station? Yeah. And, 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 and in a lot of large metropolitan areas, I'm sure – Lots of folks have that same experience versus maybe some, uh, you know, smaller towns that may have a community or college station where most people live within 10 or 15 minutes, right? You know, I think that that's been a big lesson, you know, not just obviously for radio, but for a lot of a lot of life in this last year is, you know, forcing so many people and organizations and activities online Um while it was a challenge and everyone, but it seems, you know, that, that many people have adapted to reasonably well. It also it, it gave us an example of how much more accessible things could be as well, u- utilizing online technology. It sort of kicked everyone's collective butt, if you will, uh, to, to contend with the fact that um, being able to, to travel in even, even, even or commute, let's say, um, it can be a privilege. Um, and you know, whether it's due to 
to, you know, lack of access to transportation or, you know, just, you know, sharing a car versus owning a car, uh, child care, care of family members and other obligations that may make it difficult to leave one's home at a particular time, but that where you could easily dial in, as you say, as, as one might say. I think that that's an interesting lesson, and, and, and I'll be curious to see how much of it stays with, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, college and community radio stations being able to have their meetings be at least partially virtual or, you know, um, extending virtual uh, live or pre-recorded broadcasting um, to to more people, right? So, so maybe uh, mitigating that requirement that people come into a studio in order to participate in community radio. Because I know, and there are many community radio stations that have tried to, to, to work with this and thought about ways in which they can either help people find transport, right, or, or subsidize transport, or even I, I've heard talk of plans, I don't, you know, to set up additional studios, you know, in a different place in, in, in the same metropolitan area. So people don't have to maybe travel as far or travel to the, to the central uh, part of a city. Yeah. And I definitely know a few community radio stations that are like that, that have satellite studios in, you know, I know of some in rural areas. Where I think WGXC, have... right, has one, uh, mm-hmm. has a satellite studio there in the Hudson Valley in New York. Um, exactly. Wave Farm. You know, and I wonder if, if since then that had to be pushed all the way to people being able to broadcast remotely from, from their homes or, or from some other kind of closer space, how much of that may persist, right? I mean, and, and we talked about it early on in the pandemic that, you know, there's there's a real plus side to the physical space of a radio station and studios in terms of collaboration. Also, but, but it, you know, it, it's just been a default that's been built in, you know, for the last hundred years, <laughs> not it's necessarily so, because someone planned it. Oh, there's so many pluses and minuses. And, you know, I, I, I'm of multiple minds about it because I do think that in person, there's a community building that's pretty amazing. And, and, and I see, um, you know, with online, my own experiences as a parent of an online high school student, that that being entirely online is not great, and it does not foster community. Um, well, at the same time, at KFJC, I feel like more people are actually attending our weekly meetings when mm-hmm. it's online. So does that mean it's fostering community? It's yes. hard to say. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's, I'm I'm really torn by it, because I think the in-person part of it is so important. Um, the online, having online only meetings can make it more accessible for some people and less accessible for others, pe- for other people. So, right. And that's why I wonder not... if it could be a hybrid. Yeah. Um, noting that this is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Riespendel. With me is Jennifer Waits. And we're heard on community radio stations around North America and which includes Canada and then also in Ireland, as well as uh, we're heard on online stations around the world. And I, I want to note that the first station to take us on that's a terrestrial radio station is X-Ray FM, which is a community radio station in Portland, Oregon. It's where I live. It's where our co-host Eric lives as well. We have ties to X-Ray. And we also don't produce from the X-Ray studios. We've been a virtual program to X-Ray from the very beginning. And, of course, X-Ray does have 
uh, their own studios. Although from the very start, the station is has been on the air now, uh, something along the lines of eight years or so. Uh, I apologize for not getting it completely correct. Um, I know that they've all that from the very beginning they they tried to accommodate the ability for there to be shows on the air uh, that weren't necessarily live hosted. Right where where they where people could could pre record and and give them to the station, um, rather than sort of starting with the default model as we talked about in 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 much of college and community radio, which is you come to the station and you do the show live on air, and it's the rare exception when somebody uh, is able to pre produce or produce remotely, um, you know, uh, and 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 you know, so just reflecting on that that of course then we are heard on lots of. Uh, community and college radio stations, um, and clearly were pre-recorded, and and you know, and and it's a thing where most of these stations carve out some level of space for syndicated programming, which is essentially what we function as here, um, you know. But and, and this was true, I think, during my time in community radio as well. There's often like this hard line between what we consider cons- the, between syndicated programming, which may be pre-recorded, versus local programming which must be live and in the studio and the existence of automation which has become much more accessible and less expensive and easier to use especially in the last 10 years has eroded some of those barriers simply because it became easier to do um loosening of regulations for better or worse made it easier to do because you didn't necessarily have to have a live person in the studio from a regulatory standpoint so long as um, you were otherwise satisfying the fact that a live person could have control over the transmitter, but you can do that again through remote technology. You know that it's sort of it's really changing it up, and 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 this pandemic pushed it to the fore. You know, and and I I don't think anyone still quite knows what to think. And 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 for me, I tend to think of it is that yeah, I don't I don't think all in person or all remote is the answer. You know, I, I've been working remotely now for seven years. Um, I, you know, the, the company I, I work for is, is based in LA and based in New York. And we've had a lot of people who work remotely, but even through the time, and now we have offices, many more offices. And even from the pretty early on, am I starting to work there in, in 2014, it was pretty rare that anyone who needed to be everyone who needed to be in a given meeting was in the same physical location. So very early on, we were used to the fact that you'd have uh, folks in the conference room in New York, folks in the conference room in LA, and a couple of folks remote, or a couple of folks who weren't in the office that day, or who you know were remote this month because they were you know helping out you know their parents with a renovation project and were phoning in or coming in by Google Meet or now Zoom, you know and I sort of very early on, we got used to this kind of hybrid environment that, you know, that still put some value on the in-person interaction, um, but also accommodated people not being in person. And, and I wonder if if uh, community and college stations in particular will will be able to kind of, you know, take try to blend the the positives of both of those things, the and, 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 and moving forward rather than just sort of have a reflexive default back to the everything must be in person kind of mindset. I think, yeah, I think so. And I think there are going to be, be people who are demanding it, who have gotten used to, you know, 
like I live hours away from, you know, there, we have people at KFJC who live hours away who are sort of, um, contributors to the station from afar and, and they like to be, they like to stay involved, even though there's no way they could drive to the meeting every week. So I, I think there's going to be demand for that. And, and in the fall, I mean, even with colleges and high schools, there still may be people who aren't coming in person. Mm-hmm. So there might be a demand for hybrid. Yeah. So we shall see. And if you're, you know, somebody who is enrolled in college and for any number of reasons are not comfortable or maybe medically not, it's not in your best interest to, to be attending in person when maybe two years ago you might have, right? Should that mean you are now counted out and you may not participate in college radio? It's sort of understandable if the, if you can't participate in, say, collegiate athletics. It's a little difficult to, to, to zoom into a basketball game. But as we've now demonstrated, you, you can remotely broadcast and, and participate in, in something like college radio. So I wonder if that will be if that if that door will continue to be open it'll it'll be curious to see that it will be well i i I have this is like a little bit of a departure but i have a fun college radio anecdote that i i definitely feel the need to share and it has to do with college radio and popular culture which we've talked a little bit about on the show and and in recent years there really hasn't been that much college radio and popular culture but that changed recently when I was watching an episode of Mayor of Easttown, which is a new show on HBO. And I was watching it the night that the episode first aired, which is kind of unusual for me in these days of time shifting. And all of a sudden, there was a reference to a Haverford College radio station. And if you are a longtime reader or listener to Radio Survivor, you might be aware that I started doing college radio in college at Haverford College, and I've had a long-standing project where I have been digging into the history of radio at Haverford College because it's quite an interesting history with students building the first college radio station on that campus in 1923. So super weird that I'm watching this television show, and they mention a Haverford College radio station, and you know, and I'm obsessed with college radio. So what are the odds that on this TV show, there's a college radio station, A, that there's a college radio station, and B, that they're referencing the college radio station where I went to college and where I've done a lot of writing about said college radio station. And then they proceed to have a whole scene in this college radio station um, at Haverford College. It's a, it's a fictionalized version of the college radio station. They they changed the call letters and and they've given an FM signal, which is exciting for me because at Haverford, we never had an FM signal. We were carrier current and then eventually internet. Um, and then like the first station that I mentioned at Haverford in 1923, that was a licensed AM radio station. But in my days, it was not on FM. And so they've renamed the station WWXU. The station on the TV show looks like Many of the stations that I have shared photos of in my college radio station tours, there are stickers all over the walls, there are walls full of vinyl, and the record library actually 
looks like the record library at Haverford mm. College when I was at the Haverford it's College radio station. It's as if they almost station. sent a scout or set designer <laughs> out, right? To the station to take pictures, or or maybe did research and could find pictures or, online, or read my, or read my articles, or because, maybe read your articles. Because I so I I tweeted about it the next day. I took pictures of the TV while I was watching, and and the photos of their record library look really similar to the photos of the record library that I took, or my dad took of me in the record library uh. in, in the nineteen eighties. So, so can you do a post and compare and contrast with screenshots, Jennifer? I so want to see this now. No, I no, I was I was telling I was telling my husband I think I need to do a radio a fictional radio station tour of the Haverford College radio station on Mayor of Easttown, and also I would like to um, try to reach out to some of the producers to find out, you know, to actually find out yeah. how they how they decided to depict this radio station, why they chose Haverford, which is a small, you know, twelve hundred person school. Maybe there's in the an alum area. In, in, on, on the on the show staff. Well, I don't even know about the show. Mayor of Easttown, M A R E of Easttown. What is it about? Um, so it's it's in a small town in Pennsylvania, and Kate Winslet is the uh, the star of the show as um, as a, a member of law enforcement in the community, and and, and so it, it's sort of about her and about the crimes that um, there's a big investigation that she's following a murder investigation, I see. and so um, so this is more of a side story where. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a scene in this one episode where um, this band, I think it's a high school band, they go and they play live at the Haverford mm. radio station. And there's also a, a romance brewing between the Haverford DJ and and this high school student. So maybe we'll so. see another appearance. I know. I yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, can't they wait. built out. They they apparently built out this set. They got to use it, right? <laughs> I know. I know. So so yeah. I. If if anybody knows of other college radio stations that uh, are appearing in popular culture right now, let me know. Because Lord knows there's a lot of television out there right now, and I can't see everything. Yeah, send us an email podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, you are listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. And you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com. You just heard from Jennifer Waits. I'm Paul Reismandel. We're sort of catching up in the news of of radio and sound. And, and we've sort of caught up, I think, pretty well with the state of college radio um, after uh, more than a year in, in the pandemic. And, and Jennifer, of course, is our college radio uh, correspondent and expert uh, who has been tracking um, college radio for us since the very founding of Radio Survivor back in 2009. And certainly you've been following college radios from from way before then. And, and one thing I wanted to uh, I wanted to share is um, an annual survey that comes out uh, that looks at uh, sort of media and listening habits in the United States uh, that is conducted by Edison Research called the Infinite Dial. And uh, we get the latest uh, edition of this about a month ago. Uh, we're going to air right now in, in May of uh, 2021. And, you know, it gives us a snapshot onto how people are spending their time, particularly with audio, um, but not only audio. And 
in the podcasting industry where I work, uh, we watch it because it is we use it is the canonical number that tells us how many people are listening to podcasts every year. So it's a national telephone survey. It, it's old school in its method, but because it's old school in its method, it's quite accurate and quite reliable. Um, but kind of first off, I wanted to, to to review a few of these stats, which I think are, are sort of interesting. Um, they've been tracking uh, how many people use smart speakers, you know, like an Amazon Alexa or Echo. Um, and it's now 33% of people in the U.S. now say they own a smart speaker. Yeah, that's a bigger chunk than I – like I knew they were growing, but that's a bigger chunk than I would have expected. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny. I own two smart speakers. Um, I have a uh, Google – is it like a Nest Mini? And, and I'll, I'll admit I, I own it because they they sent I, I, they sent it to me for free, <laughs> and not not because I'm in media, but because I uh, I'm a subscriber to some other service, and they just sort of said, "Hey, do you want this?" I said, "Sure." It currently sits in a box on my shelf. Um, I've played with it. I use I've used it sort of for research purposes, just to how does this thing work? But I'm not currently comfortable with having uh, a smart speaker on all the time <laughs> basically an active microphone so i yeah. uh, don't I, I i i've played with it but I, it is not uh currently convinced me to keep it on uh all the time and then i'm a sonos user and uh newer sonos speakers have the ability to inter- integrate with with either google or amazon i believe but the microphone has a hard switch Right, so so you could use the microphone or not use the microphone, and ours are all turned off. And I'm I'm just trusting Sonos that when I have the microphone in the off position, it really is off. I know I've tried to yell at it a few times, and it doesn't seem to listen to me. But nevertheless, it seems like a lot of people, uh, you know, find them useful. What it what this doesn't get into is is how much people use them, whether they're you know currently turned on. I I do know people I talk to who. Who like who like their speakers a lot and and really do interact with them and all indications show that people who have smart speakers uh, you know consume more audio content consume more radio content more online radio you can ask them to play you podcasts or to play your local stations maybe you've heard uh, on both commercial radio and on uh, public radio often they'll they'll tell you you know you know tell your smart speaker to play this station. And and uh, certainly driving people there, and a lot of folks, you know, will use them in the morning to kind of get the news, the weather, and, and things like that. But I thought it, I didn't realize we'd gotten to like a full third of people in the country having them. And and uh, here's a stat I wanted to share with Eric because uh, I know this is something he's he's got a lot of interest in. But now it says a even like a fifth of the population have ever watched a live streamed video game. So that's like on Twitch or a number of other platforms. Um, and, of course, if you get to a younger demographic of people who are 12 to 34, it's 38%. So more than who own a smart speaker. And and I think that's interesting from our perspective, even though we're, you know, ostensibly it's a, it's a video format. Because it's not just. Because so much of the, of the streaming of a video game, there's an audio experience there, right? And much of it is about the commentary and the discussion. And that it, it, it has elements that I think are like a podcast, even though there's a visual element that you may be commenting on or not commenting on. Like many video game streamers, you know, essentially are radio show hosts, <laughs> in a, you know, in, in a sort of a call in environment, only the, you know, the interaction is is via people uh, using text, using text chat with them, but answering them or speaking with them, interacting with them verbally. 
so that's another kind of, I think, platform. It's always interesting to keep an eye on, especially because it's it's so um, popular with young people. But now we we get to um, we get to radio um, and regular AM FM terrestrial radio, and so right now AM FM radio is still the most used medium in the car. And this is an area that that they look at. Seventy five percent of people say they have used radio in the car in the last month. That's down six points over the previous year. Do we know? We probably don't know how many people were in the car in the past month. No, <laughs> we don't. Yeah, that's probably changed. And although the, I know, mean, this is this. Yeah, it, it changes, but it's sort of. I would expect it. It, it, it has changed compared to if they'd run the survey in uh, April of last year or May of last year, right? Right. I, you know, I think that. While people may not may still not be in the car as much, probably the likelihood they've been in the car in the last month is higher than it was twelve months ago. Definitely. And and again, they're talking. You know, it, I think people being in the car, not in the car, wouldn't change this proportion, right? It, it's so. Um, and whereas, say, podcasts um, are now you know, are slowly bubbling up in terms of their use in the car. 30% of people have listened to a podcast in the car in in the last month. Um, and it's still lower than most other sources of audio, but it's one that is growing. And that's two points over the last year. And and certainly, you know, anyone who's tried to listen to a podcast in the car, I think you know that it's not always the easiest experience. You know, you have to use your smartphone and Bluetooth. If Maybe you have something like a CarPlay or uh Google Auto uh where you you know plug in your phone and you can interact with the with it on your dashboard but it's there's still a lot of steps involved to to get a podcast playing out over your car speakers versus AM FM radio because still more or less 99% of cars in the United States have an AM or FM radio um it's the easiest way uh to listen and then we get to the to the uh, to the to podcasts, right? And uh, the big news for podcasts is at this point uh, in time, forty one percent of the population has listened to a podcast in the last month, right? So it's about one hundred sixteen million people. That's up four points over last year, and one hundred sixty two million people say they have ever listened to a podcast. Uh, that's now more than a majority of of the population, uh, and certainly we see that uh, po- podcasts uh, are most popular with young people, right? So it's ages twelve to thirty four are the are are more likely to have listened in the last month. Fifty six percent of folks that age group have listened in the last month, and I, I that's the part that I I am pleasantly surprised with because I think you know. If we were to go back a decade, uh, certainly uh, we wouldn't see those kind of numbers, you know, even proportionally speaking, uh, I think. But that folks at age are engaging with what is mostly spoken word audio. Right. And, and from what I've been hearing from people in college and high school radio, that ends up being a pathway into high school and college radio too, that podcasting is of interest among young people and that can be a way to lure them or, or help them understand why, why radio is cool and interesting. And, and I think it's also that professional pathway. Um, 
you know, I, I don't track radio jobs closely at this moment in time, but I, uh, I'm subscribed and I see a lot of job openings in the podcast industry and there's a lot <laughs> and the, the demand for producers in particular, right? So not just, so, you know, I think many folks get fixated or, or, or really want to be hosts or be on mic, but, um, Production being being somebody who can be behind the scenes and knowing how to get a podcast made and distributed on time and on budget uh, is is a very very in demand skill right now. Yeah, and that that's something that I've heard at some of the conferences that I've attended in the past year is is alerting young people to the wide variety of audio production jobs. So also at tech companies because. A lot of just regular companies want to have podcasts. So, uh, you know, looking, there's so many different places where you can look now for those audio jobs, which is great. Absolutely. Because those podcasts are, are sometimes they are externally focused, but often podcasts are increasingly being used inside of companies uh, as a way to keep employees informed, right? As a way to uh, to highlight in employees, et cetera, as part of the overall uh, sort of HR, human resource kind of communication flow. And you know, it is it, you know it's it, it's it's easy to understand how people are attracted to wanting to be you know the next Ira Glass, for instance, right? Um, but that there is a lot of skill on the other side of the microphone and there's a lot a uh, lot of work that needs to be done you know for a podcast to actually make it out into the world on a regular basis um you know in in a way that is that is ready for for people to consume and that learning those skills right which is which are the kind of skills frankly you learn in college radio period in being responsible for programming that is consistently on the air, you know, week after week, year after year, um, translates really well. And, and, and I notice that I meet many, uh, younger folks getting it who are now professionals in podcasting, have that college radio experience and that, that maybe got them lit up about audio, but it's also because of this, the, the kind of discipline you need to learn, you know, and, and and that we've talked about before many times about college radio, but that that kind of differs maybe from from other uh, types of student activities because, you know, the show must go on, the station must stay on the air. You got to show up and you got to do the thing, and um and plan for it, right? Uh, which which is really uh, I think now a commonly understood lesson of podcasting that if you want to develop an audience, if you if you you hope to grow, um you need to make things predictable. It's in your best interest to, to make sure people know your show is coming that, and, and to be able to get consistently and not have to uh, wonder and worry or rather forget that they love that podcast that they haven't heard from in a very long time. Um, so that, I, I, that that's the thing that, that is very interesting. And, and, and yeah, we don't have to think about podcasting and radio being in competition here or being opposed to one another, but that, 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 seeing young people interested in audio that is that that um in in spoken word audio but along with music i think is very heartening to me but we're also therefore seeing that the podcast audience is getting more diverse um you know now it's about 43 percent of people are multicultural um and that's up about six percent 
compared to last year. Uh, so, you know, again, the podcast audience looking much more like the the uh, the American public at large. And, and I'm going to put on my uh, prog- my sort of wizard's cap here. And I'm going to say that I think we may see the podcast audience actually start to become more diverse than the country as a whole because of the accessibility of podcasts and much more investment going in to creating networks and programming uh, to that, that addresses, uh, you know, both the entertainment informational needs of many different communities. Uh, and, 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 you know, the more that there is that programming and there is opportunity, the more likely folks are going to tune in. I think we may actually see, uh, the podcast audience become even a little bit more diverse than maybe the, the country is at large, but we'll see. You can hold me to it. <laughs> That's a, that would be a very positive thing. So I, I hope that your prediction becomes true. Absolutely. So that's a little bit of of how uh, the audio universe is developing here. Thank you to the Edison Research Infinite Dial Survey. And as we get close to the end here, Jennifer, one thing I I wanted to remind uh, our listeners of is that um, for those who are thinking they'd love to see a new community or college radio station on the air in their area, um, the next filing window for a non-commercial educational FCC license is opening up November 2nd through November 9th. So this is actually following the commercial radio auction, which is happening July 27th. We talked about that on episode 287. But I also want to refer people back to episode 269, which we dedicated to understanding and exploring the kind of uh, organization you have to have in place, uh, some of the checklists of sorts you need to do in order to apply for an FCC full power non-commercial license. Um, those licenses, uh, it is not an auction, so the FCC does not charge you for this. But as a full power station, which is a station of that's broadcasting uh, typically with a minimum of 250 watts, but often with thousands of watts that can cover large areas, um, there's a lot more uh, engineering requirements. You have to do a lot more homework uh, in order to successfully apply for, for a license. But so now is the time to plan. If you uh, have a local organization or college or or high school uh, and you think uh, now is the time you may want to try and and bring a new station to the air in your community, um, it's definitely something to begin planning for. So definitely go to our show notes, radiosurvivor.com, and uh, you will see that we have a reference back to episode 269 where you can learn more. And we will continue to uh, bring you more information about this here at Radio Survivor. Also, though, what we can look forward to after this non-commercial full power license window is that we also then anticipate the FCC will open a window for additional low power FM licenses. These are stations that run at 100 watts maximum. So they're smaller, they're less expensive to run. Also, the engineering requirements are lower because they have less power. Um, the FCC does a lot of the work for you. Um, and so they're great opportunities for smaller organizations, organizations that maybe don't have the kind of, uh, funding and capital needed to put on a 10,000 or 20,000 watt station. So we can expect that to happen sometime after this filing window in November. So it's unlikely probably to happen 
in 2021. But I think if we're looking forward, uh, it's likely to happen in 2022. The last time there was an opportunity to get uh, a low-power FM license in the United States was in 2013, in October 2013. Um, you know, And it's a kind of thing as well, though. You need to have your ducks in a row. You need to do a little bit of work ahead of time and learn the requirements. Uh, you do have to be applying uh, from a... Uh, in the name of a non uh, of I'm sorry, you to be applying in the name of a nonprofit uh, corporation. So I, Paul Reesmandel, I cannot apply for a low power FM license. But if I were part of a of a nonprofit corporation, we could apply for that license, including schools. So yes. colleges could apply for a L- low power FM license. Colleges, schools, uh, churches also uh, qualify as do other sorts of, of nonprofits. And, you know, with both this uh, NCE, the non-commercial full-power license window, and the low-power FM window, it's important to keep in mind that there's probably going to be limited availability in major metropolitan areas. Those dials are relatively full. Um, you know, there may be a few spots available, so uh, never say never. But certainly in places like New York or Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, um, the, the opportunities, at least in, in the center part of these metropolitan areas, may be fairly limited. There may be some signals along the edges um, where you're likely to see a fair amount of availability is in smaller cities and in, in more rural areas. But uh, going into these windows, the FCC, you know, publishes lists basically, of, of opportunities where they, they, they believe there is uh, a technical ability to have uh, one of these stations. Uh, and so it's, it's important to keep an eye on that because one of the emails, we say this all the time, but if one of the most common questions we get by email is, how do I get a radio station? And the answer is, this is one way to get a radio station here. Um, so go to radiosurvivor.com to learn more. Jennifer, uh, thanks for bringing us all the great college radio news this week. Sure. Yeah, it was it was great to have an opportunity to share, you know, going to all these amazing conferences recently. So I'm glad that I could share just a little tidbit of that. So Jennifer, you mentioned uh, earlier in the show how, you know, the, uh, the set design of the mayor of Easttown for the college radio station looks suspiciously like some photos you have of the actual radio station at Haverford College. Um, we actually got contacted by a, a YouTuber who, who is fairly popular uh, the other day. He's known as the Antenna Man. And I don't know if you saw this email come through. Maybe it only came through to me. I don't know. Oh, no. Tell me more. Yes. So the Antenna Man, um, and uh, he runs a channel that's all about how do you uh, how do you receive over the air broadcast television right and but he's he's I, I like the channels already a viewer of it but he gets you know he reviews the, the antennas that you might find on Amazon but he's also been sort of intrepidly following the last remaining analog television channels. Right. So there's a few still left. Low power television, which is a class of television. It's a little different than low power FM in that it's not expressly non-commercial. But um, and but there are a handful of these more than a handful. But, you know, several dozen of these low power television signals still on the air broadcasting in analog in the United States. 
Uh, we all may remember, some of us, 2009, when we had to trade in our analog TVs for digital TVs. And if you were still watching over the air and had a tube TV, you could get a coupon to buy a special converter box for your old tube TV. I think most people have gone to flat panels. But 2009, most television signals in the United States were changed over to digital. Analog shut down. But these low-power television stations were given uh, kind of a, a longer lease on life. And originally, they were supposed to shut down more than five or six years ago. But because of, of various uh, changes to uh, the digital television infrastructure, uh, known as the uh, television repack, um, they kept kicking the can down the road, the FCC. So that's my run-up to say that, uh, that the proprietor of the Antenna Man channel he uh, emailed us because he said, hey, you've got this great graphic at radiosurvivor.com about Franken-FMs, which I made <laughs> for the final countdown of the turnoff. And, and to remind people uh, what the Franken-FM is, is that these are actual TV stations that operate on Channel 6. And since the digital turnoff, right, since, since the digital, I'm sorry, the digital turn on and the analog turnoff, there's a, there's a couple handfuls of these Low-power television stations operate on channel 6 television, which is just below the FM dial. And so folks may remember, you know, that in, in places where you had maybe a large, uh, you know, a full-power channel 6 television station, say Philadelphia, uh, where I um, – that was a television market I grew up in. You could tune in and hear the audio from channel 6 – the affiliate there in in Philadelphia on your FM dial. So you basically hear the audio at about 87.7 FM. Many of these low-power television stations that stayed on the air and analog on Channel 6 have flipped over to becoming radio stations. So they run basically graphics or like bulletin boards or even just sort of looped video uh, as part of the television signal because what they're really doing is running audio. And, it's kind uh, of like uh, – it makes me think about some of these old cable channels that would have sort of a bulletin board and then they might air – it's sort of the reverse. They would air sometimes a college radio station, like would get offered up. Yeah. You know, we'll play your audio uh, on our station while we just have you know, kind of a template on the screen. Yeah. Uh, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois is a place I volunteered for many years, a community radio station. It went on the air with FM in 1981. But in the run-up to, to getting the license and being able to go on the air, they secured a channel on the local cable system in just that fashion. So they were broadcasting, ostensibly, on cable prior to uh, broadcasting on the FM dial. Um, yeah, so exactly. However, these stations are set to go off the air, finally, it seems, in July of this year. So that is the final deadline for uh, for low-power television stations to convert to digital. Once they convert to digital, even if they're on Channel 6, uh, that they will not have an analog audio signal, so it will not be uh, received on FM stations. And so the Antenna Man did, uh, did an episode that was released just, uh, just the other day on the, uh, on the 13th of May. Uh, discussing this using our, using the graphic I made for our and you know and he was nice he you know he emailed us to uh, to ask permission to use it which is thoughtful and correct and uh, we had a little interchange back and forth about uh, why broadcasters in particular NPR oppose it um, in his video 
uh, he he's much more critical of NPR for opposing uh, these uh, Franken FMs, as they're called, um, who are who have been lobbying the FCC to stay on the air. Um, and at least one proposal that's in front of the FCC is they ask that um, these stations, and there's only a, a, a few within 40 right now in the United States, um, that they be permit that they transition their video signals over to digital, but be able to maintain uh, the FM analog signal as a legacy, and 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 in order to stay on the air. And I think the most well known of these uh, Franken FMs is MeTV FM in Chicago, uh, which is the only one that I'm aware of that actually uh, shows up in the Nielsen ratings for the city. It's that popular. Um, and actually shows up ahead of many other, uh, you know, sort of traditional, normal terrestrial FM radio well, stations. I mean, and are these, I suppose there could be radio stations who are upset that they're competition, maybe? I don't know. What What is the downside to letting them remain as legacy on yeah. terrestrial radio? Well, I think, you know, I think one of the, you know, one of the concerns is that um, on the one hand, it's 87.7. So it's if it were a licensable station, it would be part of the non-commercial band. And so and most of these uh, 87.7s uh, run as commercial radio. So that's right. certainly one objection. Uh, another objection is that while the FCC, the FCC requires that a new station on the FM dial protect an existing channel six. Right. As, as, as many of us know. Radio stations can only be so close together on the dial or else they interfere. And the same would be true of a radio station and a television station. Given that now the only Channel 6s left are sort of either digital stations or legacy uh, low-power television stations, the FCC reduced the amount you have to protect it. But it, it, it basically means that in some of these markets, say an 88.1 FM, ah, mm-hmm. may not be available to FM as long as that there is a channel six broadcasting there that's not a lot of places right and and it's and and geographically speaking it covers a lot less territory than it used to but that's still a potential ob- uh, objection there and i think the third objection is more procedural where i think uh, a lot of radio broadcasters would say look if we're going to make 87.7 part of the fm dial well, shouldn't everyone get a fair chance at it, right? So not not and so not only just in in the cities where there's a channel six like Chicago, but shouldn't San Francisco? Shouldn't every city in the country? Shouldn't we just open up that end of the dial because we've got eighty seven point nine FM, which is more or less official part of the FM dial, but which the FCC does not currently actively license, right? There's a few legacy stations there, but it does not currently license those. And 87.7 is not formally part of the FM dial. So there's never been licenses issued for that channel. And so an argument would be, look, I mean, we're all for expanding the FM dial, but shouldn't everyone get a fair chance at it as opposed to folks who sort of found a loophole and, uh, and, and have exploited it. Right. You know, and, uh, and, you know, What's the likelihood of that, though? Of which? Of of them of the FCC saying, "Oh yeah, everyone can apply for eighty seven point seven. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, it would it would be great, but 
Yeah, I mean, none of these things are impossible. And I know that folks have, have come to the FCC many times in the last 20 years, basically advocating that, you know, with the switch over to digital television, which meant a real changing of where in the frequency band TV stations are, that that should be an opportunity to expand the FM dial. And it really hasn't gotten any traction. And that could be a great spot for low power FM because then you wouldn't have those interference fears, right? Right. I mean, I mean, it, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be, you know, and, and, and similarly, I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll take the example of New Zealand where they have reserved both the low, the low end of the dial and the high end of the dial specifically for, um, for uh, unlicensed operation. Right. And, and in New Zealand, it is uh, it is fully unlicensed with a limit of one watt of power, roughly, um, which is uh, at this point, give or take um, something on the order of 100 times the amount of power, if not more than what you could broadcast with on the FM dial here in the United States uh, without a license. So your typical kind of part 15, as you mentioned earlier in the show, where you uh, uh, regulations, you know, would allow you to use an FM uh, transmitter that, in most cases, might broadcast a few hundred feet. In uh, in New Zealand, uh, with good sighting, they can often broadcast with a relatively strong signal about a kilometer, right? So something on the order order of like two thirds of a mile, right? Um, they set set aside, right? And and so instead of even uh, a non commercial, uh, I'm sorry, an unlicensed broadcaster having to to compete or possibly you know, being uh, a source of interference for a license station. They just gave them their own bands um, and allowed them. Now, New Zealand is a much less densely populated country than the United States. <laughs> you know, the entire population of the country is kind of a, you know, equivalent to the population of Oregon. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a separate kind of circumstance, but you know, in a fantasy land, I could imagine opening up just 80, 87.7 and 87.9, to a type of part 15 or, or larger powered uh, unlicensed. And imagine, you know, uh, for a place like, like Brooklyn, New York, where they, where they have lots and lots of unlicensed operators. What if we just set aside a little chunk of frequency and let them have at it? Right. That <laughs> would know, be that, great. That might yeah. help mitigate, you know, because some of the issues that, that, that licensed broadcasters in, in, in Brooklyn and elsewhere uh, complain about. And, and, and rightfully so is that sometimes you know, many of these unlicensed operators are less careful about whether or not they're interfering with. And I know I, I've certainly heard, uh, you know, WFMU in Jersey City, I've heard them complain about the fact that they have unlicensed broadcasters who are really impacting their service to, to listeners in in New York City, you know, within well within what is the the legitimate broadcast range of, of, you know, so not, not some fringe listener who's trying to get it in, you know, in a DX kind of situation. Um, so, you know, and that, that's a legitimate concern with unlicensed operators is that not everybody um, is, is trying to be a good neighbor on the dial shot, we say, but yeah, it, I think it could be great to, to, to allocate that space just to, to, to maybe a higher powered un, unlicensed operation rather and and just uh because it's you know not well exploited uh bandwidth right now um you know or it could be you know a hybrid but it's it's hard to say right because i i don't think there's been any action at the fcc on this proposal um i will need to double check it again 
but I thought uh, I thought that was that was interesting, and 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 probably you know uh, Tyler, the Antenna Man, is because of YouTube is likely bringing this this attention to this matter far beyond what we've been able to do <laughs> because he's on YouTube. But I, I I will give a shout out. I, I enjoy your channel, and he's and he he, he did a field trip. Uh, um, a number of months ago, I think he he lives in like the Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania, and he did a field trip way up to um, upstate New York with a little analog television for the express purpose of tuning in some legacy analog television stations. Nice, so I love he, it. Yeah, indeed, he's uh, he's an antenna man <laughs> after our own hearts, uh, exploring uh, the little the the all the nooks and crannies of of the uh, television band which we which we don't take into account so much here in Radio Survivor cuz you know sound but uh, I thought I'd I would I would share uh, that well, story Yeah no I I love that and 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 we definitely I have some things about television I'd love to talk about in a future episode there there are some interesting aspects to the sound of television that are quite relevant to what we talk about on this show Right, right. I think uh, you know we continue to grow our perspective. Right, uh, our our name is Radio Survivor, and you know, and and what is it? two years ago did we change our our our, uh, our intro line uh, from "This is the Sound of Strong Communities" to um, "For the Love of Radio and Sound," not because we don't still believe in strong communities, but because we really want to take into account that we don't want to be absolutely beholden to. Uh, to discussion only uh, for for you know sounds that emit on a uh, on an RF band frequency, right? That we want to be able to take in sound holistically because there really is a continuum, right? And as we see with these Franken FMs, as they're called, that's a case in which TV is radio. And there, and I think there are even more cases that we haven't even dug into, in which one can actually make an argument that TV functions as radio. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and just, I'm just going to go drop this thing that I was alluding to. Um, I was at, I was at a conference, the society for cinema and media studies conference. And there's a fascinating presentation there about vision impaired audiences Mm. and audio descriptions for shows. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're visually impaired and you're enjoying a television show some television shows have these very elaborate audio descriptions that could almost sound like a radio drama where it's describing every action on the on the screen to you and and there are even professional organizations that um talk about the the style and format of these audio descriptions there's a show on Netflix called Daredevil that's about a blind crime fighter and that was the first Netflix show to include audio descriptions oh. And then um, pornography has been a real sort of um, (laughs) interesting, you know, pornography. I've always heard that technology, they've been early adopters to technology all along. And so um, Pornhub has audio descriptions. And then since 1999, there's been a volunteer project called Porn for the Blind, where Hmm. it's like crowdsourced. you know, crowdsourced descriptions for pornography. So this was very fascinating to me to learn about these audio descriptions, which, you know, now I would like to 
to listen to some of those. I we heard a few during the presentation, but it's just another way to think about television. Yeah, right, exactly. And because in that case, it's really becoming like radio plays, but it's sort of annotated in, in, a, in a different way. Uh, although I guess in radio plays, I mean, sometimes there were narrators who were providing a degree of description of action and such, although, you know, often more, they, they did their best to imply either through, you know, the Foley sound effects or through dialogue, right? Where you can, right. you can drop hints about action uh, through what, what people say versus, um, you know, compensating for what, what can't be seen. I was aware of, of descriptive and I, I had seen some films years ago because I had a very good friend in college who was, who was visually impaired. And so, uh, you know, on occasion we would be able to get, uh, at that point, uh, films on VHS that he would obtain, uh, through, uh, services for the blind. And, and we'd watch some of those, uh, together. Oh, um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's been a long time though. <laughs> I have to admit, since I since I last accessed one. So, so full credit the the person who presented this paper was Leah Stoyer at, at the SCMS conference. Access feels vision impaired audiences and the emotional affordances of audio description was the title of the paper, and and some of what she talked about are um, the nuances. You know, um, what can and can't, what should and shouldn't you do in an audio description? You know, you have to be careful about spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes when a number of us might watch the same television show and pick up on different things. And so how do you account for that when you're doing an audio description? Um, and that makes me think you know, of your podcast, Jennifer. I hate to tell you because I know your, 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 your Twin Peaks podcast you've been doing now for like 13 episodes. Is that right? Something like that? 12 Something or like that. Yeah. Uh, just because of the fact that I, I listened to an episode last night, uh, which was, um, you know, the Zen of, of Dale Cooper. I'm getting, I'm mangling the title. I apologize, but certainly part of the discussion you and your um, your co-hosts have is on visual elements. You know, and there's a lot of homages and there's a lot of references to to other other filmic works or television works within Twin Peaks. And then you you brought up several instances in contemporary television shows that also make visual homages to. Uh, to Twin Peaks, to, to particularly iconic scenes. I don't want to give away too much. And, you know, those are things which, of course, are there, but by design are ancillary. Right. right? They're there for those who will notice it. Uh, and, and and they certainly illuminate uh, the meaning and the plot and other elements, but but they're also not essential. If you miss them, you, you are not necessarily, in most cases losing the plot right and not catching right. things right and so it never occurred to me that then there would have to be an ethic if you will on which of those things you would you would want to point out versus thing you know things that you would not and i can i can imagine one could tie oneself up in knots <laughs> well and and i well and i think about that you know sometimes i'll watch twin peaks with um closed captioning on because sometimes it's hard to pick up all the audio Mm. and and there are places where it might be hard to detect certain things so are those things revealed i don't know is it cheating to have closed captioning on well not really because some people really rely on closed captioning so it's there that's there for you um 
but yeah, it, it, you know, because we all notice different things when we're watching and listening to a show. And so when you have these assistive devices, is that, I mean, it is giving you a, a different experience than if you were mm-hmm. taking it in with the senses that you have. So yeah, I, I would love to explore all of the, all of those topics a little bit more. And I definitely want to watch some shows with audio description and, and think about how that fits with other genres that are out there. Right. And it certainly reminds me, you know, of the difference between reading Shakespeare and hearing Shakespeare that our own, at least my own, you know, inner monologue sometimes has, doesn't have the, the talent, right. It doesn't have the, the sense to, to bring it to life. And that when I, you know, I think certainly probably in college is when I paid attention and, and, you know, went to Shakespeare festivals, but even, you know, listened to, to recordings and, and saw how much the voice and the interplay of voices make the rhymes, the cadence, the references, the puns uh, so much more apparent compared to what you can see on the page and why, to me, it, the difference was night and day, right? Um, oh, absolutely. When I was in junior high school, my English teacher played Shakespeare LPs for us mm-hmm. so that we could hear it being spoken. And, and yeah, it, it brought it to life in a whole different way. We talked a little bit about this with Hannah McGregor when we were talking about literary sound and, right. and how literary sound is being archived. And that's an important aspect of that is archiving these performances of literary sound. And, and also, though, taking into account, you know, accessibility to people who have hearing impairments, right, to, to the deaf community um, and, and making sure that, you know, we're not, I mean, in many ways, what you're talking about is making sure we're not reserving uh, any given medium only to people who, who have a, a particular uh, sensory cap- capability. You know, television, uh, filmic material, not only reserved for those with, uh, um, you know, with, with, with full sight. I, I, I'm not sure of the right way to put that. In a, or not to reserve sound for people who have, you know, f- what is full range average hearing or something uh like that and and it's complex right but it's it's it 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 has all these dimensions that we that, that are easy to overlook uh when when you're accustomed to having uh fairly average vision or fairly average hearing uh you know and 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 uh yeah and and also you know uh, you you mentioned on this on your episode that I listened to it was a, there was a something which sounded like it was ambiguous and could be wordplay then you didn't know whether you know basically a word that that could be interpreted as two different possible words because the pronunciations are close and whether it is in in the script that way right or right. whether it is intended to be ambiguous and what instruction could be there and that the maybe the captions inform you or maybe they don't or maybe you don't want to be informed right it's uh it's fascinating but so yeah here we are maybe it's time for us to get into television here a <laughs> <laughs> real <Radio> survivor <laughs> i think so all right well thank you jennifer and uh i think uh, do you have anything else i don't want to cut you off Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Um, it was, it was fun to have, fun to have this episode just chatting about 
some of the recent things that have been of interest to us in the areas of radio and sound. So thank you, Paul. Thank you to Paul Reese-Mendel and Jennifer Waits for putting that episode together this week. Links to everything they mentioned in the show notes today are online at radiosurvivor.com, where, of course, you could re-listen to this episode or find all of our previous episodes, all 290-something episodes of Radio Survivor. You can also subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us and send us questions, comments, queries. That's the same as questions. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. The project is a reader and listener supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. My name is Eric Klein. See you next week.